Please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. A few minutes ago I opened our worship with Psalm 119 and verse 96. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. The next verse. Oh, how love I thy law! Exclamation point. I think that's how it's supposed to be said. Oh, how love I thy law! It is my meditation all the day. And I hope you love Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And the wisdom that Solomon has for us here in this book of philosophy on how to maximize our lives under the sun. Short, sweet, potent, practical, useful. And I hope that the Lord will bless us in it this day. Here are the lessons that we have seen so far in the chapter. Verses 1 through 3 is a warning about guarding our reputation and guarding wisdom and making it an important part of our lives. The first verse talked about the dead flies and the ointment of the apothecary. That if you want to be wise and you allow a little folly in your life, then it's like allowing flies in your perfume. It's going to send forth a stinking saver. And so we need to guard our reputations. But that was a few weeks ago. In the second and third verses, the warning is that we want to put wisdom in a very important part in our life, at our right hand. At your right hand is something you delight in, something that you use, something you can reach for. It's an exalted position in a person's life. A fool, as hard as it is left hand, it's out of control. He doesn't have it directing him. He's foolish. And we want to make sure that we remain wise. We don't want our wisdom to fail us as we fail us as we walk by the way, as verse 3 describes the fool's heart failing him when he walks by the way. In verse 4, we have the second lesson of the chapter, and that is how to get along with offended authority. And there's a lot of wisdom there. When you offend authority, and they've got the guns, and you don't, they've got the power, and you don't. When it's apparent they have the rod, and you don't then how do you appease authority? You yield. You don't fight back. You yield and you can pacify great offenses by yielding. Ecclesiastes 10.4 is a wonderful verse telling us how to deal with offended authority. If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place. Don't you leave your place of being a citizen. Don't you leave your place of being a child. Don't you leave your place of being a wife and stand up against your king your parent, or your husband, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. Even when you've done something terribly wrong, you can get rid of it very quickly by yielding and saying you're sorry. Those words that are so hard for us to choke out of our mouths, it'll put away even great offenses. Then, the next lesson in in chapter 10 is that government should enforce proper roles. And we see it in verses 5 through 7. And let me take a minute there. We've covered it, but I want to take a little more. Because we're living in, the, we're living in a terrible fulfillment of these three verses. There is an evil. These are the words of God. You know how we fear God? To get the beginning of wisdom, we trust every word that He chose. And He calls it an evil. There is an evil, which I have seen under the sun, as an error, which proceedeth from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in low place. I have seen servants upon horses, and princes walking as servants upon the earth. 
the reversal of roles that our government endorses, defends, and protects is something you need to know is wrong. It's an, er- it's an evil, and it's an error that proceeds from the ruler, because the ruler is the highest authority in a nation, and if he would exalt his authority the proper way, the other spheres of authority would be protected and exalted themselves. Remember, when we came to this passage, we used Esther chapter 1 and its great illustration of Ahasuerus and his counselors realizing that Vashti's rebellion would extend to all the wives in the whole realm if it wasn't corrected. If you're in a position of authority like a husband or a father, you make sure you're maintaining the proper roles. If you're a master in a business, you make sure you maintain the proper role between you and your employees. They're not all buddies. There has to be some distance and separation between someone in authority and those under him. It's a man's world. It ought to be a man's church. It's the home should be the man in charge, not the woman in charge. And those roles ought to be maintained. God helping me, I'll maintain them from this pulpit. And I hope that we'll maintain them in our homes. Isaiah chapter 3 warns us that when God judges a nation, He will take away the mighty men. And that women and children will become their oppressors and their rulers. And that is what has happened in America. The mighty men are taken away. The captains, the eloquent orators. Oh, if you've watched a televised debate in the last few months, you know that God has taken away the eloquent orators. And the mighty man. And the noble man. And the honorable man. It's all listed there. The cunning artificer in brass and other things. Taken away from a nation because God takes away their men and leaves women and children to rule over them. But, that's God's judgment. It's our job, when we're in authority, to maintain the proper role that are under us. Girls should play with dolls. And boys should play with guns. You know, our government wants to alter all that. So that boys are playing with dolls and girls are playing with guns. That's because there's a few foolish nations on earth whose armies are made up of men and women indiscriminately. That tells you about their army. If the women can make it, they ain't got much of one. Because a woman can't touch a man in physical ability of a 19-year-old man with the highest measure of testosterone in his life can't come close. I remember in high school, while we were ripping out 20 to 30 pull-ups, a girl would do a bent arm hang for 15 seconds and think she was strong. All of you remember that stuff? You couldn't get a girl to do a pull-up unless she's got more testosterone than her boyfriend. Or she's so skinny she wasn't pulling up very much. I mean, let me get off that subject. Or we'll be talking about pull-ups for the next five minutes. But the point was this. There is an error that proceeds from the ruler. And roles are corrupted. When I read my Bible, I don't ever read about them numbering the women of any tribe that were able to go to war. I don't read about mighty women of valor, even though there were a couple like Jael. I don't read about wives being charged not to go to war during the first year of marriage so they could be home with their husbands. Husbands were charged not to go to war for the first year to be home with their wives and to cheer up their wives. You know, our government endorses a tax policy. And I want you to... Why am I going through some of these examples? I am going through these examples so that you can take the Word of God and apply it to your life. You can take the Word of God and apply it to our nation. Because most of Ecclesiastes chapter 10 has as its first application political science. 
then it extends to our lives. Because most of this is about rulers. Is the last verse going to be about cursing the king? Is the fourth verse about yielding and pacifying offenses with the ruler? Is it about kings and nobles and eating and drinking in verses 16 through 18? It's a lot of political science here. So I want you to think. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it's an error that proceeds from the ruler. Tax policy. Our tax policy in this country rewards you if you're in debt. If you're in debt, you get to take the interest of that debt and deduct it from your income, and you pay less taxes. The government subsidizes your debt. So it rewards debtors, because it's the greatest debtor of all in the entire world. The United States government, it encourages debt. Because when you buy a house, you get to deduct home mortgage. And we all love that home mortgage deduction. But I want you to know, when you take that deduction, you are doing something that is against the Word of God. Not what you are doing, but what the government has done. Right. And then, if you save money and earn interest, you have to pay taxes on that interest. The government punishes savings and rewards debtors when the Bible says if you're a debtor, you're the tail of the dog, and if you're the creditor, you're the head. So the government rewards the opposite. I wish the government would make, if they made a change immediately, that they would allow you to deduct interest that you earned, and that they would add interest that you paid to your income. Just think through that a minute. Punishing debtors and rewarding creditors. It would totally change the way people make decisions and they wouldn't be buying houses that they couldn't afford and causing all the trouble that we have right now. I want you to know that there's an evil under the sun and it's an error that proceeds from the ruler. The Bible tells us that a debtor is a terrible thing and a creditor is a good thing. The Bible, God told Israel, when you get to Canaan, you're always going to be the creditor. And other nations are going to be borrowing from you, but you're not going to be borrowing from them. Tax policy, a graduated income scale. The more you make, the more you pay as a percentage. You all understand that when I say one of the planks of communism was a graduated income tax scale, and we have that in the United States. The more you make, it's not only the more you pay, but the higher percentage you pay. That's punishing the people that make America great and rewarding those that don't. You, the, the men who are successful and have the highest levels of income should be encouraged and supported as much as possible because they're going to turn that capital into more businesses to make the rest of us rich. But our government does it backward. And there's so many things. When you read the newspaper, when you hear the news, when you watch the news, if you do any of that, and you don't really need to, but if you do, there's answers in the Bible. There's an evil under the sun. There's an error that proceeds from the ruler. We should rise up before the hoary head. You know, in this nation, there's no respect for elders. And that is an error that proceeds from the ruler. Older people should be respected when they enter a room. The old rule of our grandparents and great-grandparents, you should stand up. That's from the Bible. It says, rise up before the hoary head. Hoary means snowy white, gray. When somebody with gray hair walks in the room, we should all stand up. We don't have enough respect. And it comes from the ruler. It's not established from the top down that age gets respect. Age is ridiculed in our country. Landlords and renters. Who gets the rights in this nation? Renters get the rights over landlords many times. I come from a state that was so corrupt. Sherry and I, when we were in our late teens and had our first apartment complex to manage, 
It was so difficult to get someone thrown out of an apartment where they hadn't paid for months and they would trash that joint before they left. Then my brother would have a job to come in and paint it again. Remember? And it was still looking pretty bad. He wasn't a very good painter is what he's trying to tell you. Where, where are the rights? The landlord has rights. The renter has responsibilities. Renters don't have responsibilities except to the extent of their rental contract. There are no more. A landlord should be able to throw you out whenever he chooses to do within the confines of the contract. But our government protects the renter against the landlord. In the Bible, the landlord belongs on the horse and the renter walking beside it, leading it. But our country has put the renter on the horse and the landlord's walking beside it. The landlord finds his hands tied sometimes in evicting someone who's not paying. It's not a right to be able to rent. It's a privilege to rent. It's a privilege granted by the landlord. No one has a right to rent a home. You have the responsibility to survive in the woods. You don't have a right to a house. You don't have a right to a roof over your head. There aren't such things as rights like that. They're not taught in the Bible. They're responsibilities to provide for yourself. And if a man doesn't provide for himself, he hath denied the faith. And that's what I'm trying to teach you right now. He's denied the faith, and he's worse than an infidel. And it's an error that proceeds from the ruler. I'm not on some personal soapbox. I want you to be able to take Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and apply verses 5 through 7 to the real world that we live in. Labor unions are the perfect example of it. All the little servants who couldn't design a a plant, couldn't organize it, couldn't raise the capital, couldn't plan it, couldn't find a market for the product, they couldn't do one thing necessary for it. They joined together in mob rebellion. A landlord is joint rebellion. It is treason, it is sedition, it is the attempt by organization to get all the little workers together to overthrow the management and the owners because they outnumber them, because that's all they can think. You know, they have 1,000 little tiny minds that combined do not equal one mind at the top, but because they have 1,000 bodies, they think they're worth more than the one body at the top. And so they have organized rebellion. And now their companies are going out of business and I rejoice at each one. Every time it happens, I rejoice. Because it can't work. It never has worked anywhere in the history of the world. It's contrary to the Word of God. The Bible tells servants very plainly how they are to treat their masters. They are to do, they are to work for them very faithfully. They are not to answer again. They are not to purloin. They are to be faithful and diligent in everything that they are asked to do. And if a master beat a servant, now this is worse than, this is worse, worse than sweatshop conditions. You know, sweatshop sounds so bad. It sounds great. Everybody that worked in one thought it was great. That's why they were there. Right. Do you know why every person went to work in a sweatshop? Because it was better money than they could make anywhere else. That's why they were there. Do you know what that means? That that means their masters and the conditions they gave them were popular. Do you know what popular means? They were approved of by all the workers or they wouldn't have been there. If they didn't like it, then why didn't they quit and go start their own factory? Do you know how severe God was on the matter? If a master beat his servant to death as long as he survived 25 hours, the Lord didn't think that it was a crime. 
And I want, I, I mention that from time to time because I want that to sink into your souls. That's the way that God would run a business. Right. And I would love to work for that company. Amen. I'll tell you, I'd go to work a little scared, but I'd be there early. Right. My hair would be combed, my shoes would be polished, I'd have eaten the breakfast ready to go. And I would say yes sir or no sir to whoever he put over me. Oh yes, I would. Wouldn't you? Yes. From the top down, that's the way God organized business. He said, no master has ever killed his slave or his servant foolishly, in general, this is a general rule, because that is his money. Men don't throw away their money. And so if a servant or a slave is working hard, he's going to be well taken care of, and the Bible says that. A slave that works hard is going to be given an inheritance among the sons. But a fool can't realize that. A fool does not understand that hard work is how you get ahead, not by organizing with the rest of the riffraff, and trying to overthrow the, the, the rulers, the leaders, the business, the owners, the management. I don't know how much I said the time before, but I, I thank the Lord for Henry Ford and what he did in Dearborn a number of decades ago. He had 500 hired guns that took care of some men that wanted to have a union. And now the union, got, the union finally got into Ford. Precious. Ford will be gone in the next five years. Completely gone. They'll all lose their jobs. No more snowmobiles, boats. And extra cars for all those auto workers in Michigan. Yes! Amen! I've been waiting for it for years. Can't stand those unions. Amen. That's why you can't, that's why Japanese cars are so much better than American cars, because union workers make them in America. They're too expensive and they're garbage in comparison. And on and on we could go, but it's an error that proceeds from the ruler. It comes from the top down. The government should defend these owners. Do you know who the owners of a company are? They are the shareholders that own that company. And they should be defended against any union workers or union organization. The army should march on a plant and shoot them all. It's an error that proceeds from the ruler. Mortgagees are protected today against mortgagors. They're going to bail out the mortgagees that got too big of a house and got in trouble. Sell them into slavery. There are acts of God when people can't make a mortgage payment. There are acts of God, and acts of God are very different from these people that bought too much house and didn't want to work hard enough and didn't want to cut out eating out every night so that they could make their mortgage payment. They should be sold into slavery. This is what the Bible teaches. It's not difficult. It's not complicated. You just take their house away from them, sell it at a fire sale. Somebody can buy cheap, and they'll, they'll use the house well. They'll rent it out to someone else, and those people can be sold into slavery until they pay off their mortgage a couple times over. That's what the Bible would say. That would solve problems so fast. Do you know how careful you'd be when you went for a mortgage? You'd say, I don't want my mortgage payment to be more than one-tenth of my net. But we don't do things that way because it's an error that proceeds from the ruler and things get out of kilter. Bad banks versus good banks. I'm talking about these things because they're in your newspaper on your news. You are hearing about bad banks being bailed out and good banks hardly getting any of the bailout money. And that is opposite. That is bad banks riding on the horses when they should be walking and the good bank management should be on the horses instead of walking. It's very simple. The Bible teaches it. It's an evil and it's an error that proceeds from the ruler because it's coming from the top down. That's a past lesson. Sorry. Verses... Eight and nine, teach the rule. What goes around comes around. But we come to verse 10. 
verses 9 and 10 have four clauses, they have four metaphors, and they're teaching the fact that if you violate some of God's order for things, it's going to come back and bite you. If you, if you disrupt it in your family, if you say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, my wife and I are going to have a relationship, we're just not as severe as, as the pastor preaches and as severe as the Bible. The Bible's a little outdated. What if we had a little bit more love in our relationship and a little bit more companionship and a little bit more equality? Our marriage should get along better. It won't get along better. You're going to be bit. Well, what if I treat my child like an adult, like they want to today? Let's sit down and reason, child. You're three years old. Let's sit and reason about how you've behaved today. You do that, it's going to bite you. The Bible tells you how to treat a child the same way you would treat a horse and a mule. Right. With a stick and some pain. The first rule of child trading is pain works. The second rule is see rule one. Amen. I love all my children. You know what the Bible says? Everyone who disciplines their children loves their children. It's the parent that doesn't discipline their children, that doesn't love their child, because they're creating a monster for the future who will not know how to submit to authority. The happiest times, the happiest times you ever have with a child is after discipline. When after discipline, you tell them why you did it and you give them a great big hug because the matter has been taken out of the way. If you don't deal with it, it is there. There's tension. They're, they're fearful because they know Dad hasn't done anything to me yet. You're irritated because you're trying, you, you don't want to be disrupted and have to do child discipline. So there's this torment going back and forth between child and father. But when you have discipline, it's all uh, the air's cleared. It's wonderful. I loved getting it over with with you guys. I really did. And I'm sorry that I didn't ever tell you this hurts me more than it hurts you. But it did hurt, because you're all learning it now, aren't you? You're all learning it now. Verse 10. If the iron be blunt, and he do not wet the edge, then must he put to more strength. But wisdom is profitable to direct. I thank the God of heaven. Oh, how love I thy law. Why is this proverb in here? Because God wants you to be successful. God wants you to be prosperous, and I am not preaching a social prosperity gospel like so many do. I'm not asking you to sow a seed and reap a harvest. I'm asking you to read Ecclesiastes 10.10 and understand that God wants you to be successful and prosperous. So he gives you a metaphor here through Solomon. If the iron be blunt, let's choose an axe. If your axe head is blunt, the blade is dull. And if you do not whet the edge, that means to sharpen the edge then you have to put forth more strength to get the tree down or to chop up the tree. That's the metaphor. It could be a saw blade. It could be almost anything. If it's dull, then you're going to, and you don't sharpen it, you're going to have to put forth more effort. But wisdom is profitable to direct. Solomon is teaching, if you want to prosper, use your wits. Don't just use your brawn. There is an error to think that Braun will win the day. It won't. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came with a large army and built great bulwarks against it. But in that city, there was a little poor man. And that little poor man, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Have we already learned that in the book of Ecclesiastes? Wisdom is greater than strength. 
a wise general with one half, one quarter, one tenth. The troops can win the day using wits, which is wisdom. Another word for wisdom. But a wonderful proverb. There's two ways you can cut down a tree. You can cut down a tree with a dull axe head. You just have to swing more times and swing harder. And it's, it's the fool. This, this is a way of exalting wisdom. Wisdom is excellent. Wisdom is wonderful. Because the fool, he loves the pump that he gets and the sweat that beads up on his arms and his forehead. As he's working that tree down, he's thinking, I'm working so hard, there's no one that can cut a tree down faster than I can. Because look at me, I'm bulging. And he says, look at that idiot over there who's just sitting there, he's so lazy. Because that idiot that's sitting over there, and I speak as a fool, the idiot sitting over there has pulled out a little piece of metal called a file and is wetting the edge. And he wets the edge, then he comes back to the tree and he cuts it down with a few strokes. And the fool just doesn't get it. Verse 15 is going to tell us the fool doesn't get it. The fool cannot figure out how to go to the city. They never go anywhere in life. Because they do not humble themselves to the wisdom of God's Word. And the wisdom of natural wisdom. There's two ways to cut down a tree by brute force or by the modest use of a sharp edge. There are some men who never use their wits and they try to get by with force, speed, or time. Well, I'm just going to keep this up until the day I die. Well, okay, you will die someday. I'm just going to go and punch my buttons all day. I want to give you an example. I, I don't. I cringe every time I give you an example. Let me give you one. Sherry's father from Virginia. You know, all his ancestors had gone down in holes and dug out coal, and they were dying of black lung, and nobody really wanted to burn coal anymore. Forty years ago or it wasn't burned in all that many places as it had been. And so her father took the 50 bucks that he had, borrowed a car, and drove to Ypsilanti, Michigan. We used to call it Ipsatucky because there were so many people there from Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia that wanted a real job instead of going down into dark holes and digging out coal. Her father goes there. He gets three or four jobs to support himself because he only had 50 bucks when he started the trip. He gets in the long story. You know, he got into a company that paid piecemeal, and he cleaned up. While they paid per piece, then the unions come in. Unions don't like per piece because men work hard when it's per piece. Do you understand that? Yeah. You understand that, don't you? Yeah, right. all, the, all the companies in Michigan that made parts for cars paid piecemeal. You could become rich working in a factory if you wanted to work hard. Then the union comes in. Nobody can be rich. You're all paid the same thing whether you work hard or not. And there's a hundred rules made to make sure nobody works hard. Right. He learned that very quickly. And so he became a skilled tradesman. He worked a full-time job or two and went to school, driving one hour to get to school, to a technical trade school to become a skilled tradesman, machine repairman for Chrysler Corporation. And that elevated his salary a great degree and got him away from the riffraff. Because he went around fixing machines. And I I love that example in his life, my father-in-law's life. I commend him before the Lord. He was a hard worker and he applied himself and he gave his body. To that, we all give our bodies to something because our bodies are going to give out. So if, if our bodies are going to give out, then we gave it to somebody. You know, wives give it to their families and men give it to their employers. Eventually it gives out. His body has given out to a great degree in his back because of all the heavy stuff he used to lift. He didn't like the rules that the union had. You know, if it was over 50 pounds, you had to have a forklift. Oh, yes. Oh, there were rules. And there was a certain person you had to ask to make sure he went to the forklift driver and made sure you didn't interrupt his break 
where he was drinking or smoking so that he could bring the forklift and lift your 50 pounds. Now, my father-in-law and Nathan are a lot alike. You know, they don't, they don't understand weight. They don't understand hernias. They don't understand herniated discs. They just lift the thing, whatever in front of them. He's named after his father-in-law. I didn't know that in advance. It was just prophetic. Her father, when he moved, when he moved, anybody needed a refrigerator moved in our community, he'd just walk up to it, back up to it. He's not that tall. Just back up to it, put his hands this way, and walk it in the house and set it down. He wet the edge. How did he wet the edge of a Virginia son of a coal, coal miner's? How did he wet the edge? He went, he went to trade school and got himself an additional skill to become a, skilled, a machine repairman for Chrysler Corporation. And he's still living on that hard work he put in. You say, well, he's living on it because the union gave it to him. No, there'd be a whole lot more if it hadn't been for the union because Chrysler can't make any money and hasn't made any money for the last 30 years because of the union. Remember, we bailed Chrysler out once before. I was part of a bank that was part of that bailout. Wet the edge. What can you people do to wet the edge? In your... The Bible's telling you, this is how do you live. In this little tiny pamphlet that we call the book of Ecclesiastes that tells us how to have the best life possible under the sun, there's all these rules. These, these, there's these rules of wisdom. Right. Oh, how love I thy law. Ecclesiastes 10.10 tells you to sharpen the axe. Whenever we're with each other and we, we see an opportunity that a person could do better for himself, we should say, let's sharpen the axe. Right. Let's sharpen the axe. What can we do using our wits more than our backs? And do it. God wants you to work hard. When did He teach us that? 9.10 Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. But He wants to tell you, might doesn't get the job done, and might doesn't make as much money as using your wits to leverage your might. The word leverage is not here in the text, but it's what's implied. Leveraging your strength. Because you have to put forth more strength to get the same amount or less done if you don't wet the edge. But if you wet the edge by using your wits, you can leverage your strength and do more. That's how R.G. Letourneau made all his millions. Remember the man that uh, went into a, a banker when his partner left him and he had a business that failed and he owed the bank money. He went in and told the banker, I'll pay it back. I'll pay it back. And the man said, how? He said, with these. And he went out and took up manual labor to pay back that debt. Because R.G. Laterno was committed that he was not going to renege on any debt. He was going to pay them. And eventually he figured out this is not very effective. So he invented bulldozers, then bigger bulldozers, then earth movers, then bigger earth movers, until all the large earth moving equipment on earth was made by R.G. Laterno Company. 60% of the Allied heavy equipment in World War II. That is an enormous contract. R.G. Laterno, because... He wet the edge instead of just using strength. God wants you to profit. Bless, bless the Lord our Father. This is our Father sitting down with us saying, Son, if you want to get ahead, it's not just effort. It's not just time. It's not just speed. Use your wits. How can you leverage what you're doing so that you can accomplish more? And it affects every part of our lives. It affects government. It affects relationships. It affects employment, professions, careers. It affects a lot of different things, using your wits to leverage your effort. Profit is the goal here. Isn't that the word in the text? 
But wisdom is profitable to direct. Wisdom tells you how to direct your energy so that it's applied most effectively. Working hard is good, but working smart to leverage that hard work is better. This is another creative way that Solomon told you that wisdom is better than strength. He's already taught that in the previous chapters, that wisdom is better than strength, but here he puts it in a different way to get your attention. Discretion is better than valor. Discretion is another synonym or a word for wisdom. Valor is for bold Courageous effort. Discretion's better. L- doing, the, doing the right thing at the right time is better than just bullying ahead with force. Some people think force works. Force doesn't work. As well as wisdom directing the proper amount of force in the right place at the right time. How can you put this text to work? Think about a few examples with me. Foolish men read the Bible. They get into a church like ours where wives are told to submit and reverence their husbands. I've seen it happen many times. They go home. (laughs) Yes, they're feeling their oats. After an hour of hearing what the Word of God says, what wives are supposed to do, they're going home saying, wait till I get home and close the door. I'm going to lay down the law in this house. And they think they're going to force submission out of their wives. You can't force submission out of a wife. You ain't got a wife if you force it. You've got a slave. You've got to win it. It's a combination of management and winning. Seduction and and force. It's both. You can't go home and lay down the law. You can't make a woman love you. Show me how to make a woman love you. You've got to win a, a woman's love. They put two more strength, but if they had used a little bit of wisdom to whet the edge, they could have got a whole lot farther ahead. Flowers work a whole lot better than the back of your hand. Mom, Dad never hit you. (laughs) The Bible is very clear that to get the most from your wife, you are to love her, cherish her, nourish her. As the Lord did the church, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. If you want to get the most out of your wife, then you... You love her as your own body because no man ever yet hated his own flesh. And since your wife is part of your own flesh, the more you love her and cherish her, the more you're going to get from her. That's what, he, that's what Ephesians 5, 25 to 28 teaches. It gives, it gives the man the motive as to why he should love his wife. I, you know, some, parents, some fathers hear about child training and disciplining their child and all the things that the book of Proverbs says about it. And they think they can force submission. But you know what? A wise father also wins that submission. I'm thankful that God does not only deal with me with a club. God, my Father in heaven, does not deal only with a club. In fact, a club he uses on rare occasions. Usually he loves me by gentleness, goodness, and kindness. He hugs and kisses me every single day and tells me he loves me and that I'm his son and he's going to take care of me. He gives me so many things to delight in. He gives me gifts every day. Does your Father in heaven give you gifts every day? When you go outside and see that sky, the sunshine, and eat your bratwurst in the back deck looking at a blue jay sitting on a red flower, who do you think that came from? Wouldn't you run through a wall for that, Father? Wouldn't you do anything He asked you to do? He shows so much goodness. Come and get me after the service, guys. I'll be vulnerable. It's not You can't force a child to obey. Because they'll give you their outward obedience, but when they're in the room, they're not saying nice things about you. 
I'm going to get to that when I get to the last verse. And you know it's there. Curse not the king, no, not my thought. But you can't, you don't win their heart that way. You can't force that. I'm trying to give you some legs to Ecclesiastes 10.10. You know, we, we, and we know that it means, I've already given you an example of a man who came from the coal mines of Virginia and found his way to the machine repairman of Chrysler Corporation and lived happily ever after. You understand what I mean. You can go back to school to add appropriate technical courses or get a degree. You know, that's whetting the edge. That's making you more valuable. That's making you more competent in your job. That's adding to your resume. It, it might only need to be a few courses. If you're in business in any way, shape, or form, you should always take an accounting course. Accounting is the language of business. And if you don't take it, you can't even read the language. You can't even understand what's going on. You don't know debits and credits. You don't know income and expenses. You don't know assets and liabilities. You don't know those things. Just a couple courses would help you. It only takes a little bit of time, and you can learn a few things and whet the edge. But remember, here's the choice. I just want to work hard every day from sun up till sundown. If they say that there's another task to do, I'm going to stay and do it. That's the man who wants to cut a tree down with a dull axe. It's better to take a little bit of time and to go whet the edge so that you can cut faster and better. You can examine whether you have a transferable skill and identify how to get one. You can figure out if you work for a firm that rewards people for creativity and productivity or not. And if they don't, then go find a firm that does. Wisdom saves to buy an income-producing asset to get ahead of workers. Where is that verse found? In those words. Wisdom saves to buy an income-producing asset so that you can pass workers. Proverbs 14.4 Where there is no ox, the crib is bare. But by much increase, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. Let me give you a short illustration again of this put into practice by Solomon. And then you think about how you can apply it. There's two ways to farm. Two farmers started out in the Bible. One had Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 4 and the other one didn't. The other one did it, would take his boys out there and they'd grab their hoes in the morning after they'd had a big breast of big breakfast of biscuits and gravy and ham, and they would get those hoes, and they would clear a tenth of an acre. Sweating. Pumped. They'd come home at noon and be fed again and go back out there. They slept well at night. Oh, they slept well at night because they labored from sunup till sundown with back-breaking work using a hoe to clear a field to plant, to harvest, to live on. And they'd look over at their neighbor. And they'd see him doing the same thing to get started. But on weekends, the one family would take the little bit that they had saved up and go blow it at McDonald's. They'd go blow it at McDonald's. The other man and his sons would stay home. And when they were asked, why don't you ever go to McDonald's? We're just saving, just saving our money. Just saving our money. Well, it took several years. They looked identical from the outside, except the one family was always at McDonald's. Then several years later, there was a big smelly object in the farm of the second family. And that big smelly object was an ox. They had saved their money, denying themselves for a few years in order to get themselves an ox. And then one day, the other family watched in amazement that instead of the second family going out there with their hoes, they went out there with this great big smelly animal and they had some ropes tied around its neck and shoulders. And there was an 18-inch plow behind it. And they walked behind that thing all day and they did two whole acres. 
They said, what in the... Look at how much... They snuck over at nighttime. They snuck over at nighttime and went into the barn. They saw that ox eating up hundreds of dollars worth of grain. They said, this will never work. This will never work. Look, they never got to go to McDonald's, and now the ox is eating all their grain. They're never going to get ahead. You know the end of the story, don't you? The first family was working for the second family the next year. Do you know what they were doing? They were shoveling out the grain that the ox had eaten and out of the barn. Because all of a sudden, that second family owned several farms. That's buying an income-producing asset. Sometimes it's made by John Deere. It's a wonderful lesson in the Word of God. It's in, it, those Proverbs are intended for you to look at them, pull them apart, expand them out. They're little, they're little nuggets of, of wisdom from God. They're little jewels. You want to look at all their facets. I want you to remember that illustration the rest of your life. When you save money to buy an income-producing asset, that means you have to go through some self-denial in the present. One brother in the church has said, if you won't live like others in the present, you can live in a way that they can't in the future. Because your saving and savings will, is capital, and capital will earn you more income in the present than if you had used that income, I mean in the future, than if you had used that income in the present. If the iron be blunt and he do not wet the edge, then must he put to you more strength. But wisdom is profitable to direct. Wisdom made that one father say, sons, we're not going to be able to do this for long. We're going to reach a certain age. We're not going to be able to go out there. Then how are we going to eat? And you know, this little, this little acre that we, or two acres or four acres that we do every year, why don't we do 40? But dad, how can we do 40? By the strength of the ox, son, because I want to show you something. I have this little pamphlet that Solomon distributed, and it says in 14.4, much increases by the strength of the ox. The crib is bare where there is no ox. Is that what it says? The crib is bare where there is no ox. Where there is no ox, the crib is bare. But I thought that the ox would eat everything in the crib. Wouldn't it be an empty crib if you had an ox? Wrong. Because God made certain machines or certain animals to help us multiply our efforts so that we can leverage ourselves. The ox can produce far more than he can ever eat when his strength is attached to the witty invention of a curved piece of metal that hangs down in the ground 6 to 18 inches and turns the sod. Oh, thank you, Lord. You say, well, this is so elementary. Then why are there... uh, why are there nations and places on earth that have never figured this out yet? They still take a piece of curved wood and throw it at rabbits. Can you hit a rabbit with a boomerang? The only thing I could do is hit windows with boomerangs. You're, it's the witty inventions of God and His mercy, and it's in the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs. You know, how can you do it? You know, you can save a little bit of your money and put it away in whatever you want. It can be a rental house. You can be a rental house where the renter is buying your, pay, buying your house for you by making the mortgage payment. And the government wants to give you tax deductions for some of the expenses associated with your rental house, then do it that way. You want to buy some stocks in the market? Don't talk to me about the stock market right now. You take the stock market right now at its terrible price. Compare it with any price in the past over 20 years ago, and it's been a great source of return still. Because you can save a little bit of money, put it away, put it away, put it away, put it away, every week, every month, every year. And it will accumulate, and and people can be working for you around the world 24-7.
That's a way that you can put it into practice. Facing a recession, a wise man's going to make adjustments rather than just work harder. He's going to use his wits. What is going to be necessary even in a recession? And he's going to be think just constantly using his wits. Business textbooks have suggestions. A man of faith makes the best plans he can and trusts the Lord to direct his steps. He uses his wits. If the iron be blunt and you do not wet the edge, then he must put two more strength. But wisdom is profitable to direct. God wants you to learn how to leverage your efforts so that you can accomplish more. The Lord is so merciful to give us such a verse. The Lord is so merciful to give us Proverbs 14.4. Now, if you can't see a way to apply Ecclesiastes 10.10 to your life, it's, it's political science. If a, if, a government, if a government just tries to brute, use brute force to get its citizens to do what it wants to do, what happens to that government? It's overthrown. Can you give me an example from the Bible that tried brute force rather than wisdom? Rehoboam. Rehoboam should have read this verse in this context of political science. Because instead of humbling himself a little bit and reducing taxes just a little bit, which would have been wise, it would have been whetting the edge of the income-producing ability of his nation. You know, it would have been whetting the edge because they would have been happy to pay their taxes if you'd have backed them off by 5%. By not backing them off by 5%, he lost, please help me with the math, he lost 100% from 10 tribes. If he'd have backed off 5%, he'd have got 95%. But he didn't do that. He used brute force. If you want to win your wife, apply Ecclesiastes 10.10. Wisdom is profitable to direct. It's not always force that wins a child. You can only keep them under your control when you're in their presence. Win them. Win them with the Word of God. Teach them the fear of the Lord. Can you take another course? Learn the wisdom of this verse. It's a wonderful verse. Thank the Lord for it. We're at a point right now, a breaking point, because verses 11 through 15 are about the fool and about speech. We don't want to distract ourselves at this moment, so we will take our break for our snack between our two services. Oh, how love I thy law. The law of the Word of God has everything from salvation that we have in Jesus Christ on how to work effectively and make the most of your life under the sun. Solomon saw that under the sun there was vanity. And one of the vanities was men working harder than they needed to because they didn't use their wits, their wisdom, to leverage that effort. And so he teaches there in that 10th verse of chapter 10 to have a different approach. May the Lord bless us to put it into practice in every way that it applies.